It's the 10 to 1 podcast with your host, Brad Oven, featuring Ben Conowitz and Nate Laux. And here's the podcast. Oh, Saturday Night Live. They're on hiatus because it's the summer. But we also don't know when they're coming back for new episodes. (laughs) Holidays. Because there's a strike from the actors and a strike from the writers and everybody's on strike in Hollywood. So (laughs) what we decided to do is, you know what? They made a bunch of Saturday Night Live movies. Yeah. We have fodder for a podcast. Because we love movies, too. We do. If you haven't listened to our podcast, Go Flicks Yourself, you might find out about what kind of movies we like and just hear just a bunch of bullshit over there. We watched some Barbie. We watched some Oppenheimer. We watched a lot of things this week. So check that episode out. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, check out any episode, honestly. Just dive right in and just just put your feet in the water. Dive right in. Uh, But we're going to kick off uh, a series of retrospective episodes, and we're going to try and do them roughly every other week. Uh, Probably be less frequent if SNL comes back on time in September. Uh, we'll, we'll use them to break up lols here and there. Uh, but we're going to go back to the very beginning, the very first Saturday Night Live movie. It's Pat. That's Yep, that's where they started. <laughs> uh, but no, we're going to start with the Blues Brothers, uh, based on the classic characters created by Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi, uh, two of the earliest cast members of Saturday Night Live. Uh, both of these characters, Joliet Jake and Elwood Blues, uh, were created on Saturday Night Live and uh, had a quite a history before they actually got their own movie. And in a way, it's kind of surprising that this was like the first Saturday Night Live movie, especially when you consider the fact that the next Saturday Night Live movie wouldn't arrive for roughly like what ten Wayne's years World, yeah. or fifteen 12, years in the nineties. Yeah. yeah, yeah, in 1992. Because it went from 1980 when the Blues Brothers yeah. to 1992 with Wayne. Yeah, so uh, the Blues Brothers really kicked it off, and it didn't. Funnily enough, didn't really start like a big wave of them trying to turn uh, characters. It, in fact, it's it, kind of surprising that it like, did well. Yeah, it did well, and it's 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 weird because the movies that we got in the nineties, like Coneheads and stuff like that, you would have thought maybe would have followed the Blues Brothers, but it just took them a while for SNL to become this movie sensation yeah, machine. And it is even more surprising to me that if you look back at why why studios greenlight projects based on intellectual property, the Blues Brothers even back then would not be a certified, oh, this is something we need to do. They had three sketches or three three performances on SNL, yeah. and then they 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 have a very successful uh, album and tour, but that wasn't something that was known to the general public necessarily. It wasn't in the zeitgeist as far as like they were they didn't have a Super Bowl ad for it. I think really what what it comes down to is this perfect storm surrounding John Belushi for the most part. Sure, because at at this time when Blues Brothers the Blues Brothers movie came along, uh, John Belushi had uh, had the he was on the best TV show at the time the high TV show Saturday Night Live. Uh, he had a chart-topping album from the Blues Brothers that he did with Dan Aykroyd, and he was just in Animal House, which became this huge blockbuster comedy at, at the time. And so, but also they, uh, Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi were leaving SNL at this time, right? And the, 1941 had just come out. And so, which shit the bed horribly. Yeah. So it was, he was a rising star for sure. So the green light of this, I get, but the nervousness of during production, knowing, oh my God, you know, 1941 comes out, these guys don't have the bankable star power anymore because they're not returning to Saturday Night Live. 
could this be bad? Yeah, well, not only that, and as we'll get to when we start talking about uh, the movie itself, uh, there were quite a lot of uh, production woes, shenanigans. Yeah, during that. But uh, but let's talk. Let's start by talking about the origins of the Blues Brothers. Nate, let's. Uh, what you got to talk about here? The Blues Brothers was actually kind of more of a Dan Aykroyd idea. Dan Aykroyd was hired at SNL actually as a writer first. He joined the show as a cast member before the show was birthed, but. He got brought on because, and he was very young. He was the youngest cast member of the the beginning. You know how young? Um, what's that? We're talking nineteen, twenty, twenty one. Uh, probably in there, twenty one. Yeah, okay. Yep. Um, early twenties, I think. So I, because when he was seventeen, he got hired on a show that Lauren Michaels was doing, his first variety show that he did in Canada. He was a cast member of the Hart and Lauren Terrific Hour. It was a Canadian variety show that aired for Kevin two Hart seasons. Kevin Hart and Lauren Michaels, <laughs> famously. <laughs> Uh, and it also had Victor Garber and Andrea Martin, uh, who have gone on to do quite a bit of other things as well, both young at the time. And so they only had two seasons, but that was when he met Lauren Michaels. And then he got involved in you know the comedy scene in Canada, where so many actually, so many sure. great comedians yeah. that we know. Because even started. though even though uh, Second City is the nickname for Chicago, and we know it as being this big Chicago improv place, they also have a very big successful uh, secondary location in not even just secondary but like they have several locations around the country but toronto canada famously is where a lot of comedians got their start through second city in the program that they have up there so going down to chicago then uh as dan arcoy did as a second city member because he was in toronto and chicago he fell in love with the blues um because chicago is known as a blues city right and so he fell in love with this music he's actually a musician himself as is John Belushi, actually. John Belushi, I don't know if you guys watched the film and thought this as well, that I was really shocked at how good John Belushi's voice is. Like, it, he has a very good voice. For So John Belushi uh, famously has a, a Joe Cocker, right, that he yep. has done on SNL. And he reminds me of, it's to me, it's an impressionist doing music, but mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that you have a bad voice. No, yeah, I mean, right, so it's he, much better than I would do. Yeah, exactly. And it, but it's not necessarily a singer. It's yep. more. It does feel impression based. Yeah, he, he. It's it's certainly derivative of yeah. other people. Yep. But, but again, doesn't make it bad. But he. But he does it. Dan Aykroyd, not so much. Uh, no, does not, does not he really... does like the bassy. Yeah, like, exactly. You know. Yeah. <laughs> but soul, he, he's soul, good on a harmonica. Soul man. <laughs> I mean, honestly, he's not great. But that's fine because he can dance like a gangly spastic superstar. On a trip then to. Toronto to meet the Second City cast in Toronto, Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi met each other. And they actually, from what Dan Aykroyd says, actually had an idea there for this kind of thing. They both like music, but it was more just making their friends laugh, having a good time, right? And so Dan Aykroyd gets hired. um, And actually the one that I, I did not know this before researching. John Belushi got on the show because of Chevy Chase. Chevy Chase and writer Michael O'Donohue recommended uh, John Belushi to Lauren Michaels as a potential member for the television show that Lauren was putting together, which was Saturday Night Live. Because they did they did National Lampoon together. Exactly. And John Belushi already had a reputation at this point. He's a little wild. He was undecided. He didn't know where he would fit. For us, it's so hard because SNL has been a staple our whole lives, right? On this podcast, we talk about the... But at this point, it hadn't 
it hadn't developed its. Yeah, its it, it wasn't the the same procedure as it, as it is now, where you know a, a talent scout of a talent scout of a talent scout would report up, and then maybe you'll get a meeting, and maybe you'll do an audition. Yeah, yeah they, they were kind of throwing this. Well, together. there's and there's that, that's there's a reason why when Saturday Night Live first started, it wasn't called Saturday Night Live. It was called Not Ready for Prime Time, yep. and the cast was called the Not Ready for Prime Time Players because it was kind of like at the time what would you what would be perceived as this like collection of alt comics, you know, yep. people who aren't like a George Carlin or anything like that. Even, and the, the crazy part is that's exactly what the show still is. Yeah. Because everybody that gets hired in is not ready for primetime. But yep. but people are staying so long now that you're just like, oh, these are primetime people. Like you would never say, oh, Kate McKinnon is still a, you know, not ready for primetime player. Right. Or right now Ego Nordum or you know, no, they are primetime, right? That's exactly what the show is. I love the fact that it that part of it hasn't gone away though. Yeah. They're still taking these amazing chances on these undiscovered people and some of them obviously burn out yeah. and fade away and some become the next you know a will ferrell or the next uh anna gasteyer who has now had like an incredible uh, broadway career like mm -hmm. there are other pathways for these people that, uh, not just movie stardom charles rocket <laughs> but no, back then, back then, uh, when the Blues Brothers uh, came out, it wasn't a launch pad to a superstar film yep. career. And, and well, they didn't know what it was going to be. No, they exactly. Didn't know anything, right? They were just doing. It's honestly, they were just doing things. Yep. And Laura Michaels had a, a, a show in Canada for two years that then got canceled, and so like there wasn't yeah. any guarantee that he it was going to be per be perfect here. Yeah. Though he had, you know, it was kind of interesting as you read about all this. There was quite the. You know the comedian community in New York City at the time as well. There was just a lot of the players that have become legends for us, not only as uh, comedians but also as uh, directors and things like this. Were all kind of hanging around New York at the time. There was a buzz, and so it came together really. Even, even not not necessarily that this is interwoven in this film directly, but SCTV was a, another thing that was huge in in Canada, and so you've got uh, people like Eugene Levy and uh, and and John Candy yep. and. Rick Moranis, and then you look at how that's intersected with the New York comedy scene where John Candy's in this movie, right? And he wasn't on SNL at the time. I don't even know if he ever, if he ever auditioned for SNL or even thought of as a, could, could have been one. But the idea here is you've got all of these different troops of comedians that are kind of convalescing at that time, and you're pulling from all these other areas. And then you've got- I think he just made up a word. What? Convalescing. I mean, I'll accept it. I think you combine converging and coalescing into one word. Yeah, but that's okay. I, I think convalescing is a word. I don't. Is it? It I'm can just, be. I was just confused by it. Like I understood what you were getting at. But I'm, I was like, I'm, you know, I'm kind of like. Do you want to look it up? I'm now trying to do because now I'm curious. Okay, go ahead. Convalescing. <laughs> so it's yeah, it's it is a word, but doesn't quite mean what you said i guess it's re to recover one's health and strength over a period of time after an illness or operation exactly exactly oh, fair enough which is yeah. what the comedy scene was doing at the time so like <laughs> i said uh they were convalescing and He's, he was talking about people coming together though no so. no no it's, i mean it, no, it, i mean you know it's a resurgence of power in the comedy community <laughs> and again i've been saying it for years so again john candy was he really does have that book he wrote about it's called called the comedy convalescence <laughs> <laughs> thank you so uh, go on Amazon and use promo code the 10 to 1. <laughs> so anyway, long story short, they didn't really know what they were doing back then. They they made a movie and, and it got greenlit and it had a budget of $17 million to get this thing going, right? Well, yes. That's not what they spent. No, no. Yeah. It had a budget to start. That's what they spent on the cocaine. Of yeah. $17 million. And Dan Aykroyd famously says they did a line item for cocaine in the budget. Yeah. Right. Uh, so... 
you've got this Canadian influence in New York and then the Chicago we're from Northwest Indiana so mm. the Chicago vibe of this for us Wrigley Field is hilarious that they bring this up over and over mm. in, the, in the film the uh, 1060 West Addison you know and all that and Illinois and Indiana and it, it's it's right right next to us right so what was your guys' connection with the Blues Brothers when you were growing up? I didn't really have one. My dad was not an SLL fan. I didn't even know about the Blues Brothers until well into probably college. Well, I mean, we weren't alive when the movie came out. No, no, or I mean, when, it like, was on when SNL, you're growing so. up, though, did you know about it? Um, n- no, but I, I did. What's What's interesting, though, is I knew of a lot of blues bands locally, though, because sure. my mom would, you know, go out on a Friday night or something, and she'd go see. There was one locally called the Elwood Splinters Blues Band, and so... Like there, there was this music genre, and like everything they were doing had a local feel for me. So when I watched the film, it felt very familiar to me. Um, but I didn't I, honestly. I don't think I watched this film for the first time until the late nineties. Uh, so it wasn't part of my formative sure. experience. I'd watched Wayne Wayne's World and all those films way before well, I yeah, watched this one. You and I were born in. I was born in 81. Yeah. 81. Sure. Brad, 88, 86. 89, 92. 1986. So, of course, before our time, for sure. Uh, Brad, did, did your dad or introduce you to this? Yeah. So, uh, I, I so I mean, I was always, uh, I had been aware of the iconography of the Blues Brothers. I don't for, think that's you know, a word. Uh, for a, a while, you know, I mean, like the, the the image of them is kind of just like all over, sure. the place, especially yep. being so close to Chicago, right. you know. Um, but it's uh, my my dad, you know, uh, liked SNL, you know, uh, when he was younger, and I was introduced to it when I was younger, so I was aware of it. And I did, but I didn't actually see the full movie until I think I was in high school. Um, but I, I did like it and I appreciated it. I liked, you know, the, uh, the blues music in it and whatnot. And like, it was cool just to kind of become familiar with it because my dad, you know, liked the blues brothers, not just as, you know, an act on SNL, but like because of their music, because he was into like to rock and that, yep. that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, that, that, that's basically when I, uh, got acquainted with them and, uh, yeah, that's, you know, pretty much where so it started. In high school and college, I, I knew of the house of blues. And that was really where and blues clues. <laughs> I, I and so I I didn't know the connection though between like Dan Aykroyd helped start, co-found the House of Blues, and I didn't know that. Uh, it's a chain restaurant, basically. Is, is what I thought. Mm-hmm. But then, as I was in college, and you know the House of Blues ba- bands would play there, and you'd want to go to Chicago to, go to the House mm-hmm. of Blues, and then I I watched it for the first time in college because of that. And I found, I mean, I love the film because it's more, it's more of an action movie than you'd think. You think it's going to be a musical and yeah. it turns out there's a lot of explosions and a lot of crazy driving and a lot of, a lot of wrecked cars. So I think this film had the most car crashes because you, you said there's kind of an action film and there is kind of that element to it because there are cars crashing constantly. It's like 107 or something like that. It's, I looked it up. It's 103. 103. 103 car crashes. That is a lot of cars. I, I read that they had like essentially like a parking lot full of cars that they just planned to wreck during the thing. And they also had an auto shop on set to fix cars constantly because they were always wrecking I, them. What, what is what is the car called that they drive? What is that called the again? The Bluesmobile. Yeah, the Bluesmobile. They had like 14 of those even. Yeah. They had a bunch of those. So I never even thought of it like an action film like you said, Ben, but you're you're right. There are those. There's car chases. There's all those kind of elements to it. And you had sent a, a, a link to a, a YouTube video yeah. of a, a short uh, documentary about this, and it was like 15 minutes long, and we watched. We all watched it. And uh, Dan Aykroyd, or, or sorry, it was the um, who's the producer? Howard Klein. What's his name? That sounds right. It's Howard Shore. Howard, no, Shore, Howard, Howard Shore, Shore is the guy from Saturday Night Live who was like a part of the band. Sorry. So whoever was on this documentary, yeah, it yeah. said. Um, 
or maybe it was even John Landis who said on this. I'm just surprised that more people don't look at this as a musical. It's John Landis. John I Landis. wrote that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah so John Landis. There, there's that. so many music. There's so many. Uh, there's so much musicality here. There's so many songs in this. And I then watch this going into it as a fan, going, "Oh, this is a musical." And then I come out going, "That was an action movie." Yeah. See, I was surprised good- listening to him say that because to me, like, it is a musical. Like, those yeah, are those are, those are full musical numbers of singing and dancing yep. and like, yeah, it's like so that documentary, whatever that was, that must have only come out in like the '90s. Yeah, though, right? it, it came. Out around, I think around the time that Blues Brothers 2000 I think it was came out with the the DVD. Yeah, actually. and so I I think that at that time in the zeitgeist, I don't know that it was known as a musical then because he's clearly saying I just don't know why people. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Yeah. I don't think people do consider it a musical, and he does. This is a musical, or at least me. or at least at the time that it came out. Yeah. Right, right, yeah. yeah. I do want to go back a little bit to talk about the the kind of beginning of some of these things because. Uh, what I thought was really interesting is, so they start SNL, and Dan Aykroyd actually buys a speakeasy. Um, he had one in Toronto as well, but he buys a bar in New York City, and it is, uh, according to SNL cast members that had been there, the crappiest bar you've ever seen. Of course. <laughs> um, but they, oh, just like they do now, they had after parties after every episode, but then the cast would, would not want to be around all these people because eventually they let everyone in mm-hmm. and they would go back and, and Dan Aykroyd wouldn't let many people in unless you had permission to come into this. And so and they had instruments there and they just started playing. Um, Paul Simon would come in, all the like all of their friends, and they started music, uh, playing music, and that was kind of part of how this birthed a little bit is in this bar, having a lot of fun with your comedy friends, playing music. And, you know, John Belushi would sing and, and uh, Dan Erick would just kind of introduce him to blues music and said, hey, take a listen to this. You're going to love this. And he didn't really get it because at the time he was interested in a lot of the kind of 70s rock bands, the Jethro Tolls, these kind of things. But he ended up really loving this music. I think that music. the documentary that we talked about, too, that talks about uh, Belushi like being into metal and stuff yeah. like that, too. Yeah, Eckhart said like he introduced me to heavy metal. Yeah. So I just love that. You know these characters in this this film and these albums, just like so many of the great ideas that have come from Saturday Night Live, are birthed out of just friends throwing ideas off of each other. And you know the first time they play music is technically the birth of you know on SNL is technically the birth of the Blues Brothers, but they were in B costumes. Yeah, it was part of the on- the recurring B sketches that they did. Yeah, exactly. And so they were they were dressed up as bees, but they were playing Jake and Elwood blues. Yeah. on January seventeenth, nineteen seventy six, and they only did Blues Brothers two more well, four more songs, but uh, two more episodes. That's it. Yeah, yeah, they um, three kind of. Perform three episodes with performances. Yep, and then Aykroyd and, and Belushi are leaving the show, yep. and they they get this movie. Now I know that you guys have talked about this off air because I didn't do the research on this part of it. Um, three albums though. So they had the soundtrack album released in 1980. Obviously, they had a live album released in 1978, 1980, and 1997. But that was obviously without John Belushi. Sure. So two albums with, but with that John 1978 Belushi. album, yeah. which was a live album, but it was you know an album. It was number one on Billboard 200. That's yeah. crazy. It, w- it went two times platinum, which means it sell- sold over two million albums. So now, now if that's the case, right, and uh, maybe that is where the studios are going. Okay, well, there's a there's a following here. 
Because I, I was a lot of albums. Well, I was the one saying, oh, you know. Well, that and they were they were established as characters on SNL, which was huge at the time as well. Yeah. So now I'm going. I'm backtracking here because I'm like, well, that's a pretty big chance for nothing, but this isn't nothing. No, and 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 when they released this, man, they went on a tour with Grateful Dead. Yeah. So pretty, so, pretty, pretty, I mean, pretty right, big guys. Obviously. They were wanting to kind of do more with it. The studios said, I think you can do some more with it. Dan Aykroyd wrote like a 300 and some page script. He had every character completely fleshed completely out. Completely fleshed yeah. out. Because like, like right? him and Belushi had like talked about the characters <laughs> yeah. for a long time when they were doing the music and stuff like that. And even the, the liner notes for, I think it was the first album, laid out their background about growing up in a Catholic <laughs> orphanage and all that stuff. And they put all that stuff in the movie and including how they were influenced on blues music by Curtis the janitor yep. and, and all that stuff. And so it all turned into thing and Ackery talks about how because this was the first screenplay he ever wrote he had no idea how to format a screenplay like properly or anything like that because usually for those who don't know screenplays are very limited as far as like what is actually in them it's not like a book where everything is intricately described or anything like that it's usually uh pretty brief descriptions that just give you an idea of your setting mostly focused on dialogue and it's it's supposed to be short every every page of a screenplay is supposed to be one minute of screen Mm -hmm. time so your typical script that gets turned in is a 120 pages. Yeah, that, that's usually it's what people shoot movie, for. Right? And, and so, and he turned in this thing that was like 320 some pages. Oppenheimer level. Yeah, <laughs> like I, I think Landis even calls it like a, a tome or something like that because he included all this like rich background information about all the but characters. The and, funny part in the documentary that we watched was that he had a good sense of humor about it because Dan Eckert knew that. Right, he he's not an yeah, idiot. Yeah. He knows this is double what it should be, so I'm going to deliver it as it's a phone book. Yeah, he put a cover, a phone book cover <laughs> on it, and deli- that's how he delivered it. Which is, it. you know, yeah. he, it's meta he gets it but also he's expecting then it for it to be cut down yeah. which it was by John Landis yeah John Landis com- took it and like just pieced together a movie from it which so, this is fascinating to me like the, the whole process where uh, Dan Eckert allows that to happen to his baby and doesn't yep. get mad about it and still wants to do it like yeah. that's a it takes a pretty big uh, you know uh, uh, there, there takes a uh, somebody with not a huge ego to let that happen absolutely and what's interesting about this too is, you know, as fans of SNL now, we know that, you know, sometimes cast members leave for episodes and they're doing something. Cecily Strong did something on, I think, in Broadway or something. She mm-hmm. did a, a play uh, before she came and finished her career at SNL. There were other people that have left the show for a time to come back during a season. Lauren lets that happen now. At this point, though, he really wasn't. And so, especially for his writers, and Dan Aykroyd was a writer. So, John Landis wanted Dan Aykroyd to be uh, D Day in Animal House. That he, he well, no, well, isn't I think I think that might be because in the documentary, doesn't he say that I think that Harold Ramis wrote the role and it was based on Dan Aykroyd, but John Landis had no idea who Dan Aykroyd was been, or yeah. anything like that. But but they but but Lorne would not let him do it though. Right, he wouldn't let him do it. I just thought it was really interesting. Now SNL characters or cast members rather. They have a, so much more freedom to right. do some of those and, things. And to your point, there, uh, that is, is a very recent rule. Yeah, like, he had that up through like the two thousands. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. No, yeah. the uh, Dana Carvey and like, everything cannot, they talk about. Yeah. They wouldn't have been released unless you were doing a film that Lorne was producing. Exactly. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Wow. So kind of had a stranglehold on comedy back then. <laughs> so these these guys are birthed on SNL for a couple. You know, and you can watch them on uh, YouTube. You can. They're see. not. They're not really sketches either. No. Nope. They're, they're just they're musical performances. performances. They were the musical guests. Yeah. Yeah. And then they released this album in 1978. They do a tour with the Grateful Dead where they're opening. That's so crazy. And then the movie comes. 
And they even had budgetary issues. Of course, yeah. It's $17 million to start ends up being 27, almost $28 million And much... That's a lot of money for... I mean, I don't know a lot of comedies today probably wouldn't well, get that that's, money. Yeah. You know? We talk about, on our other podcast, Go Flix Yourself, we talk about nobody makes an R-rated $100 million comedy anymore. Uh, in, in today's dollars, that... Twenty-seven million dollar budget is about ninety-eight million. Ooh. So that's that's this kind of comedy, yeah. and, and it, you're saying, okay, well, a comedy needs to be two hundred to three hundred million to make it worth our while. Mm-hmm. Holy shit, that's a big ask for something like this. Um, but yeah, twenty-seven million, and and it was because John Belushi, you know, he liked the. You now they said there was coke on the on the set and this and that. And it's, it's not just Belushi. No, no, everyone's they, doing coke yeah. on this movie set. But they did. <laughs> kind of pin it on him that like he's the reason you know the calls aren't happening because he's oversleeping right. and yeah. Uh, yeah. he at one point had stumbled through a back uh, uh, weed infested yard and walked into a gentleman's house raided his fridge and slept on his couch and Dan Aykroyd found him that by walking that same path seeing the weeds cut down in that area like oh there this looks like somebody walked through here and literally it was like is we're, we're shooting a movie. Is is there an actor? Oh, Belisha? Yeah, he's on my couch. Now, Ben, what's it like to be that blitz? I'll tell you right now. It's, <laughs> it's, it's shameful, but then you do it the next night and you forget. So <laughs> I was talking to these guys, uh, you know, before the podcast about how my John Belushi is Chris Farley, right? And so I always thought, because I, I wasn't around for John Belushi's career, I always thought they were very, very similar, but both brilliant physical comedians. But their personalities were very different. I, I was reading in some of the books about um, Live from New York quotes by Tom Shales and uh, James Miller. Dan Aykroyd says, John was extremely bright, really, really smart, a great administrator and executive. When we were doing our Blues Brothers thing, he was clearly in charge. He was the front man. He was the boss. He was the guy that was calling the shots. Everything was brought to him for decisions, and ultimately his decisions were correct ones. He was very together as a businessman, understood the creative world and the business world and the marriage between the two. He was just one of the smartest people I've ever met. And he talked about if if John Belushi in another interview, he talked about if John Belushi was alive today, he would likely be directing things on Broadway. He was a theater lover. And, and not that Chris Farley wasn't smart or anything like that. Actually, Chris Farley talked about being insecure. David Spade talks about Chris Farley being insecure about maybe not being smart enough and kind of things. And so he used his physicalness and his, his weight and stuff to kind of project onto that, hey, I'm the funny guy. But John Belushi was a little different. Apparently, anyway, according to Dan Aykroyd, he was actually a very smart type of guy. He just yeah, found it, drugs and it's, kind of it's, ruined it's, him. It's honestly. so hard to like, you know, the comparison. I love love Chris Farley. I yeah. love drugs. <laughs> <laughs> but like the comparison <laughs> being like, I don't. I'm not trying to call Chris Farley stupid, right? Nope. Yeah, that's I, I want to be. Very, to I want to yep. be very respectful here. Uh, but John Belushi was not Chris Farley in that way. Chris Farley wanted to be who he thought John Belushi was, and I do feel like John Belushi was just different he he really did have it as yep. far as and I think that pa- intellect and that design aspect of things and i think part of that comes from just the fact that like at the time that chris farley was you know rising up that there wasn't like a lot of like there was no book you know that yeah that john belushi's wife had written already like the yep. or anything like that or like a lot of intimate digging into who he was it was that public persona of right. just like being this this funny guy and being in the spotlight and everyone everyone loving and him. he was a physical comedian yeah. right and, and that's chris farley famously uh, uh, through the uncensored history of Saturday Night Live that I read, um, and I read it, Brad. I didn't listen to it. I read it. <laughs> um, actually, did say, you know, oh God, I I, w- I could never write. I, I just perform. 
I, yep. I will take somebody's idea and run with it, you know. But it, it and, and all look, the writers wanted him of in course, the sketch because he's going to make it brilliant. Yep. You could, yeah, Chris Farley could then be the Keenan back then and take a sketch and make it something that it yep. wasn't, right? John Belushi would be the one that wrote and designed and, you know, that aspect and then also performed it. That's yep. the big difference. He could anyway. He didn't yeah. often he didn't write often, as yeah. much, but um, I don't think really, I think because in the same way that Chris Farley didn't, he yep. didn't need to because yep. everyone wanted to write for him. Exactly. Well, and again, he had already at this point gotten into a lot of drugs. So, you know, he was coming in blitz sometimes and people would be really scared especially the hosts John not going to be able to perform but as soon as the camera goes on he's there and yeah. he's outshining the guest host because he just he had it when it, when it was on so listen guys when you have it you have it all right <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about the film itself. When's the last time you before to, or you know the last couple? Of, when's the last time you I saw think the I've film? seen this film once, other than this. And, and when was that? Probably like in the nineties, late nineties. Brad, I would probably. It's been a while since I sat down to watch it in full, um, but I would like catch clips every now and then because since it's a movie, it was a movie that I had seen several times. It's a movie that I would throw in the background if it was on or something like it's that. It's really interesting because I'm watching a lot of like Adam Sandler nineties movies with my boys right now because they're starting to get into this kind of stuff and to to compare it to that type of film. It is so so, it's so different. different. Yeah, it's at times slower. It's in a in a, in a way. It's not slapsticky a lot of times. In a way, this movie because because uh, I think um it's two hours and twelve minutes. Yeah, two hours and yeah, it's, it's over two hours. It, it's it's a long it's a, film. Yeah, it is. It, you could have a good fifteen to twenty minutes cut out. It, oh, for sure. It's kind of like it, it kind of goes along with a lot of comedies in the seventies where like they didn't they weren't necessarily uh super short like they are today. Like a lot of comedies today, they know they gotta minutes. hit that ninety minute yep. sweet spot. A lot of comedies back then went between hour and forty five to two hours. Sure. You know, and like on Go Fix Yourself, like we just recently talked about Slapshot. That's another movie. It's like two hours long, and it feels didn't like it. Be, yeah. yeah, they could have cut that down. It's and, an old movie, by the yeah. way. If you don't know. About and it. this one, I think, has an excuse though because it is a musical. Like that's what fills the time. But, you know? uh, yeah, though the songs themselves. If you're going to take seven minutes to do a song and yeah. you're doing four of them, five of them, seven of them, sure. Also, the scope of this film, the the extras. Oh yeah, and the, I mean it's incredible, especially I mean, for the end. I mean, yeah, just nuts, right? Um, no, the last time I saw this film uh, was actually in like 2014 at Wrigley okay. Field. Really? Oh, nice! On uh, on that have been special on Groupon. They had this like, come to Wrigley Field, watch the Blues Brothers, and break a Guinness World Record. And we're like, what? So I took a date, and we went to uh, Wrigley. Who was it? Uh, her name is Kelly Jones. Oh, I love Kelly Jones. She's amazing. She's a cutie. Uh, uh, happily married now, and you know it's fine. Brad. <laughs> for now. <laughs> <laughs> no, Kelly and I uh, dated for like three months, and one of the things we did was we went to Chicago. We I bought tickets. It was like twenty nine dollars. Mm-hmm. So we bought tickets. They let you onto the grass on Wrigley Field. I think they still do this every now and then. Actually, oh, yeah. they have a summer movie like. And this one was a little different because they obviously they're showing the Blues Brothers. Great. But you got to get in an hour early, so you could like stand and like touch the ivy and stuff. It was cool. But then they broke the uh, the Guinness Book of World Records record for the most people simultaneously wearing sunglasses at night. Nice. Chicago people love this film. Oh, because it, it, and that's so that's why you broke the Guinness World. There, it was packed. Yep. It was yeah. almost sitting room only, right? Like yep. everybody with blankets, and I mean they made it a big deal. It was incredible. I also feel like. These days, when you watch this film on any, if it does pop up on, let's say, just regular, like, I don't know, TBS or, or whatever, mm-hmm. you're not watching the theatrical version. I rented and watched the theatrical version, mm-hmm. and I don't know that that has 
really, unless you buy it or rent it, the one that's on TV is shorter. It is under two hours long. I rented it, so it and was so yeah, so we saw the full two yeah. hour and some. Yeah. I'm not sure if that's the case because like, what are wh- what do you what version do you think they're showing on TV? So I I just when the last time that I saw it, like especially at Wrigley Field, I remember it was not over two hours long. They yeah, had a very specific window. Yeah. So we watched a version of it that was cut down a bit. And that's the last time so I saw wait, it. So wait, you watched the theatrical version or you watched the uncut version? No, I watched just the theatrical version the other, like t- like today. For this. Okay. For this. Yeah. At Wrigley Field, it was under two hours long because they had a, a very limited window. Okay, so yeah. They I'm, needed I'm, it to be done. Weird. Edited for television version, maybe. Huh. You know, is what okay. we watched. And I do remember thinking, I don't think I've seen this part. Right, and so weird, it, yeah, because there was a lot of like the destruction scenes in the first part of it with Carrie uh, Fisher, yeah, that I I don't know that were in. And did you guys know that? I think that 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 might just be because though not only are they brief, but like it's just it's such a not not memorable enough. Yeah, yeah. Like I think a lot of people forget that Carrie yeah. Fisher is even in the movie. Well, and and I'm. This may be a hot take. I don't know that she needed to be. Like, no, that's a C story. I honestly think that she's in it because she was dating John Belushi I, at the time. Uh, no, Dan, Dan Aykroyd. Or Dan Aykroyd, yes. Yeah, but I get that. Uh, but also, I'm like... They got engaged on this, actually. They could have cut all of that. They're, the mystery woman thing, she's labeled as mystery woman in the credits. Yeah. <laughs> just no, it was, it, it was, it was like, it was, it was kind of, it's a, fun. It's a long way to go for a fun gag. No, no yeah. but it was it, also even the like gun thing at the end, right? And sure, so she's shooting. I'm like, you've got like an Uzi that's shooting like a hundred bullets you, a second. They should be dead. Hit them. Like, <laughs> Especially, if I mean, she, I'm not sure you can like really like be listen, upset about the comedic action. Like, if she has the wherewithal in the very first <laughs> yes. time we see her to have a multiple round grenade launcher accurately hitting a building, I think she knows what she's doing with an AK-47. What the fuck saying, that was? I, I'm just saying <laughs> she's a woman, Brad. Is that what <laughs> wow, you're saying? Wow, 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 wow! Just saying the quiet just, part just, out loud. <laughs> You just didn't need her. That's what I'm saying. Is no, like it, it the, didn't make the sense. The comedy didn't hit. It just wasn't. And really that's good. honestly, that's I don't know. I do want if, if there's one <laughs> bit I love as far as like Carrie Fisher's part in it is when she blows Elwood's apartment apart and they okay. just they just get up from yeah. the bricks. <laughs> no, so okay, that, that is a good part. The, yeah. the recurring bit though of, of that actually when they they get up and they dusty they dust themselves off. Yeah, and it keeps happening, and they constantly are dusting themselves. Off. That was very funny. Yeah, to me. yeah. Uh, do you know what my favorite recurring bit in this movie is? Uh, is it, uh, we're on a mission for God? No. It's That's a, mine. It's a, <laughs> <laughs> Nate's a pastor. Nate's a pastor. Uh, no, it's a subtle one and it's one that's as subtle as the ongoing joke in airplane, which I think I've brought this up on the podcast before. And this is because something my dad pointed out to me that like I had n- I would nev- never have, have figured this out myself unless I read it somewhere. But w- one of the best like stealth gags in airplane is that every time it cuts to a shot of the airplane, which is like a Boeing aircraft, the sound you hear is of an old propeller, propeller plane, yeah. not a jet. And that's hilarious to me so my favorite gag in this is john belushi is constantly checking his watch throughout the movie in the very beginning when frank it's Ga- so funny I, when I frank oz gives him back his stuff he says one, he watch, said, broken. one watch broken yeah. yeah but but he's checking his watch throughout the yep. entire movie and that's a gag also uh there are other scenes in the movie where there's a broken watch from people did you notice that? No. Yeah. So the, uh, two different times in the movie, somebody has a watch and, and they they point out that it's broken. Oh, interesting. Yeah, uh, yeah I didn't even realize really that. Really weird. So, Brad, you brought up one of your favorite bits in there. Um, 
you know, the recurring bit. Is there a favorite scene that you have in this film that you just kind of love? It's hard for me because uh, fans of Go Fix Yourself that are listening as well know that I'm a musical theater nerd. I love mm-hmm. I love the musical scenes, right? Yeah. You get Aretha Franklin in there. You get all these things. By the way, fun connection. We're in uh, the shadow of Chicago. We're about an hour from downtown. We're in uh, Indiana side, though. And in the town that we live in, uh, Laporte, Indiana, there's actually uh, somebody in the film... That lived in Laporte, Indiana. Scott Skiles. No, nope. <laughs> um, yes, famous Orlando Magic basketball player Scott Skiles. And it, and it wasn't Oprah either. Uh, it was actually Pine Top Perkins, who is a famous blues piano player. And he I didn't moved, know he was from Laporte. He's not from Laporte. He moved to Laporte though. So and he's so, from Laporte. Yeah. So he spent <laughs> and a lot of years. Immediately left. He's from <laughs> Mississippi. He out. From Fuck Mississippi, this. moved to Chicago, and then moved from Chicago to Laporte. Why? He liked to fish. Well, you can do that here. Yeah. Yeah. There are a lot of lakes. <laughs> and I saw him in the scene. I'm like, oh, wow. Because, again, they have all of these Hall of Fame blues people and, okay, in the maybe film, right? We should bring up the fact that um, Dan Aykroyd fought for that because mm-hmm. the studio really wanted uh, whoever the, the band that did Car Wash. Yeah. Well, uh, car Wash. Uh, Casey and the Sunshine Band? No. It was, cool it was the not that. Nope. No. It was not a famous the band. It was, no, it was like, nope. no. It was a no-name band, but they did Car Wash. Do and they, they, the car wash, they were yeah. pushing for that because that had just come out, and it was like, here's how we here's how we make this movie relevant. Rose Royce. Yes. Yeah. And so uh, Acro said, no, 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 no. We want to do authentic people that are, are, are from what we consider to be, you know, the best form of this. Yep. And... It, and they have a ma- they have everyone. <laughs> like, yeah, they do. And for that reason, they got them all right. They were able to get Ray ex- Charles. And I think also Ray. why their budget was a little higher too, because yeah. they had a lot of people to pay. Yeah, um, but at the end of the day, it worked obviously. And I'm very glad that Pocket uh, to the Comma was not in the Blues Brothers. Oh my God, that would be crazy. Well, I mean, just I mean, like Motown obviously is great, but like that's that's still like far different from like the blues that like the Blues Brothers and, and like all they talked all about that a do. bit in the uh, in the documentary. They said we're going to take something and kind of make a new thing. Yeah, they said we're going to take this kind of Motown ish, you know, very very bluesy thing, but then we're going to put we're going to put New York horns. On top of it. Which is kind of a little bit more of the difference between like a Bayou type of blues or a Mississippi blues. Which is not what Dan Aykroyd wanted to do. That's a very Chicago blues, right? You're adding horns. You're adding a little bit more rock sensibilities to it, though. You're still keeping a lot of the the moving bass lines like a blues and and stuff like that. And so let's give the Blues Brothers credit here. That's a different type of blues that hadn't really... No, and, and, and again, maybe it's just where we're at in the country... I can tell you at least probably five cover bands that are playing that style of blues today still. Of course. That are playing those songs, you know, and the it's same songs. Around us anyway. Yeah. Very popular. I loved some of the cameos. I really loved James Brown's role in this. I thought he was brilliant as the pastor in there. Did you so the the video you sent us is like I think it's a cut down version of what is on the full could be. Blu-ray DVD because it's only fifteen minutes. And I went through I didn't get to finish it because I didn't realize it was so long, but I played uh what is comprised of the the making of mm-hmm. Blues Brothers stories and it's like it's almost an hour long. But I, I got through, I don't know, maybe like half of it. And one of the things they talked about actually is um, almost everybody uh, is lip syncing when they were recording. Yeah. Except James Brown 
uh, did his live because as they explain in the documentary, he's like, James Brown doesn't do a song the same way twice. Ever. He, yeah. So, so to have him do it again, like he's not going to like perform it the same way. And so because it would, it would have been harder for him to like lip sync to whatever he did before. They just had him perform live when they did the, the actual shooting of that scene. They did that with uh, him, and I believe they did that also with uh, part of Aretha Franklin's. Thing. Yeah, I think so. I think uh, I read that too. But, but nobody else. No, it's no. There was one other. It's the guy from uh, what's his name? The one who plays in the street. He was the other, the other one who did it. Uh, oh, the Moody fully live. Blues? No, what's his name? What's his oh name? gosh, John. Yeah, it's John. John. John Lee Hooker. Yes. yes. Yeah, he was the other one who did that. that, that he did his live as well. And it, it would be incredibly tough for these very, uh, uh, you know individual unique performers that always do it differently yeah. to be like oh well how'd you do it last time repeat that what that's right. not a thing that now, we do brad maybe listeners to the 10 to 1 don't know that you are uh steven spielberg's number one fan so was that your favorite cameo <laughs> i mean that's when i when i saw it and i saw this we were like that's just so fun it's like it's such a random thing to have spielberg Wait, what are you serious? You didn't not, realize this? I'm not joking. The guy who plays the Cook County commissioner at the end who like gives the them the receipt. Yeah. I mean, that's Steven Spielberg. I was so concerned with what was going on. I didn't even like, look at that guy. Yeah, it's Spielberg. Oh my God, you're yeah. right. Oh so, my God. Yeah. So, wow, wow. I think, wow, isn't wow. that a John Landis thing? Doesn't he like to put Steven Spielberg or something in his films? Oh, I don't know about that. I mean, I thought, I mean, I thought that was a not. thing or something. I don't know. Yeah. But, like, um, I just, Frank Oz at the beginning. Yep, that's another one. That yeah. the end with the prophylactic. If you don't know Frank Oz, he's the voice of like every Muppet and Yoda. Yeah. And he directed What About Bob? Oh, yeah, that's how he's famous. I did not know, know that. Actually. I didn't yeah. know that. Um, but yeah, and then uh, Paul Rubens has a, a small yeah, as role a waiter. As a waiter. Yeah. Pee Wee Herman, mm-hmm. for those of you that don't know, yeah, uh, has a very small cameo, which is hilarious. What, what I also loved about it, too, is the, the backing band. They might be tempted to do put actors in there, but the band, who actually have a fairly prominent role in this film. All real bees musicians. All the band. That, mm-hmm. That's the band that they travel with. Uh, uh, Aretha than, Franklin's, uh, maybe now X, uh, 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 what's his name in the film? Uh, the guitarist. Did they just call him guitar? <laughs> no, no, I'm serious. That His nickname is guitar. No, no, but, but the, it's it's a Mad Dog or, or, or Mike. I think Mad Dog is right. Whatever it is. Um, when I first saw him, I'm like, I'm not joking. Like I'm like, why is this guy a beefcake? He's so ripped. He's so it's like Apollo Creed looking. Like he's yeah, yeah. he's a uh, that's, really uh, Matt Guitar Murphy. Yeah, Matt, Matt. Sorry, <laughs> Matt Guitar Murphy. That guy is a bodybuilder looking dude. I thought he was gonna come back in the movie and do something. It is like, funny because I, I did. I did feel like. Did I see him in like Predator or something? Right? He, he, he <laughs> does look a bit like a like a <laughs> yeah. Carl Weathers. Yeah, exactly. he really like, does. Yeah. No, because he is. He's just he's jacked. a jacked <laughs> guy. Yeah, it's like he's a guitarist. Does he break them all the time? Uh, there's a deleted scene actually because uh, he's in the background cooking and he's like uh, he's like put some uh, broth in there and you got yourself a stew come on that's <laughs> an arrested development joke and this is not a TV podcast uh, that's our other podcast well it is actually kind of a TV podcast. it is literally a TV <laughs> podcast <laughs> this is the one that's a TV podcast shit I got myself confused again so when, when you watch this film do you think this is a great film or a good film because I'm going good film there there are things here that I love and, and, and I enjoy watching it and yeah. I'll wa- keep on watching it but at times it is slow for me. We talked about the style of comedies at this time, and it's got a lot of action. It's got a lot of music. There's a lot to put in this film. And from what I understand, it is cut down from what John Landis actually created. He yeah. created a longer film. The original cut was like uh, like uh, almost three hours, I think. Oh, I thought you were talking about oh, no, no, no. Aykroyd's script. No, Aykroyd's script would have been like six hours. Right. They yeah. did like a three-hour film, and he had to cut it down to like... Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah, I think it's pretty good. You know, I mean, I think for me... 
the legacy that's there is probably more so about the music and the yeah. iconography of the characters. Um, it's as Agreed. far as far as comedy standards, there's there's some funny stuff in it. It's not the kind of movie where like I'm laughing out loud, you know, all throughout or anything like that. You know, um, I expected to laugh more honestly when because I hadn't seen it in twenty some years. Yeah, and I expected to have more slapsticky ha ha stuff. Yeah. I, I mean, I think for for me, I think the funniest part because and it is literally slapsticky is when they go back to the orphanage and the talk nun. to the penguin yeah. and yep. and they keep saying shit and then he she hits him and is like yep. Jesus Christ ah, <laughs> shit and she just keeps hitting him and then she breaks out an even bigger yeah yeah and then that's when Belushi whoever that stunt double is he took a I tumble know, all the way down, down the stairs <laughs> in a desk in one take yeah. in a desk that guy broke a rib i read that the catholic church put, puts this as one yeah. of the highest films like the yeah it's like, like the passion of the certified yep, by um, <laughs> as a good representation of catholic faith that's great i don't think they're talking about the penguin i think they're just talking about the characters like yeah, deeply they're about. on a mission. Well, I mean, from they're, God. they're on a mission from God. Uh, who would have thought, though, that the Blues Brothers would have been prescient enough to show us that Nazis are still around and dickheads? Oh my God, it's too I, relevant. It's you, way too honestly, relevant. Honestly, so when that scene comes up in the in the first place, where like, who are these guys? And like, Illinois mm-hmm. Nazis, and clearly, uh, you know, Jolly Jake has never heard of Illinois Nazis, but he goes, "I hate Illinois Nazis," <laughs> which is just a funny scene. Yeah. But then Aykroyd, you know, uh, Elwood just hits the gas, and they all go over the bridge, and I'm thinking. These days, um, I would love to do that. I would as well. But these days, half the crowd would be chanting "Yay Nazis," <laughs> and it would just be impossible to put them all in the river, which is unfortunate. It's hard for me to watch this film and not fall in love with the background because I do love Chicago and watch the music is great. Um, like I said, I, I enjoyed watching this film quite a bit. Good, good film. Good film. The uh, action scenes are bonkers. It, it's it's that, and that's the thing. So why isn't it a great film? So we're, we're giving a lot of credit. What does so, what stops it from being a great film? Ben? Because it's not one or the other, and I, I I mean this in the in the most positive way I can. It's it's not it's not a musical and it's not an action film and it's not a it's not a road movie. It's not a chase film. It's not a coming of age. It's not it, it's 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 a bit muddled between action and, and musical. If they and maybe, comedy. And yeah, comedy. comedy, yeah, and honestly, it's it's a little too light on the comedy for being a Saturday Night Live produced, you mm-hmm. know, Blues Brother. But then again, when you're on, uh, it's not a sketch based comedy, you know, from SNL. It's yeah. a yeah. This was the music. They didn't guys. have lines to do like Wayne's World does. Where That's the like, thing is, know, like, it was every, never meant to be that. Every yeah, every SNL movie they they redo the sketch in some form in the movie in an hour for, and a half. Yeah, yep. for Blues Brothers, for them redoing the sketch is just having musical sequences right. and Dan Aykroyd dancing funny, which yeah. they did. And it was great, but then they decided, okay, how do we pad this out? And they went with, okay, full blown, almost 1984 uh, commando style explosions, and and these again, 103 cars being crashed. It's like, did you need that? That ending scene in the assessor's office with literally with Steven Spielberg, two, thank you. <laughs> 200 people pointing guns and all these all these cops like trying to break down these doors and all these extras it's this epic scope and i don't know that the blues brothers to me is a movie with an epic scope 
and there, there's just so much going yeah. on. There were a lot that, of scenes where I felt that's a big scene, exactly, and yeah. it didn't need to be. And I think that's actually a detraction. You wonder, you wonder, because again, the studio started getting really worried because the cost of this film, yeah. and and they they did do some crazy things. They built their own bar. They built you know all these. Oh, kind of things. oh, by the way, my favorite. Oh man, kind of buried the lead here. My favorite thing about the documentary we watched. Is I'll that, put that in the show notes, by the way, everyone. So they can. said, um, and we found this crazy rare thing an abandoned mall yeah. yes yes and i'm like and bailey and i looked at each other my girlfriend and we're like those are we have one down the road yeah exactly. you know because it's 2023 but back then yeah in 19 whatever the documentary even 1990 or even 2000 yeah those didn't exist it was yeah. like, an oh, abandoned mall in 1980 it was just this <laughs> rare version where we got, and but then when uh, when they said that the documentary, and then I saw the movie, they spent the budget to recreate yeah. a, a mall. I mean, it was a full mall. That's a full mall with full. So that must have been what? Well, they at least made it. They dollars? at least made it look like a full mall. It hadn't been well, sure. By the time they shot, it hadn't been closed for very long. Well, so, a year, so about they, a year. They had yeah. to do some like window dressing and whatnot. And, and obviously, when you're when you're running a car through plate glass and things like that, it's not yeah. real glass. And then every single shelf was just paper mache that just blown away. Right. I get it. Right. Also, the funny part to me was when they were filming, they must have just said, hey, we're just going to, for no reason, have them run into all the glass. Because mm-hmm. the, the, the Blues Brothers, the Blues Mobile was just taking out yep. s- like sideswiping glass for no reason. Yeah. And that was so funny to me. They clearly said, in this scene, we need to see it all. Right. My favorite thing about the driving stuff, too, is, and this is just like signature trait of the Blues Brothers themselves, is just that they're never panicked or they anything. They were so they're, calm. All, they're all just, yeah, just sitting still <laughs> like, yep, this and is just normal. And like, like, oh, no, Pier 1 imports? <laughs> Like yeah, and then of course they slide it upside down, and you've got these uh, stunt drivers that are covering their face mm-hmm. because it's not the real actors, and they had to slide the car for too long for the actors to do it. So they're covering. They're like they don't want to watch, but that's how you cover the stunt actors' faces. Yeah, like that's things like that that are very clever. I think you cut the Carrie Fisher stuff, and it would have been a, a better movie, honestly. Even though that was a fun gag, it was probably hundreds of thousands, if not. One million dollars of the script is blowing <laughs> shit up because of her. I'm fine and with it. Did you need it? I'm fine with it. All right, fine enough. I'm fine with it. I, I, I want more of it. <laughs> <laughs> you want more of it? Are you guys very excited? Release the Fisher cut on a, a scale of one to ten. Now, and now that we've seen Blues Brothers, how excited are you for Blues Brothers 2000? I hot take Jim Belushi better actor than John. So. Well, Jim Belushi's not in Blues Brothers. It's John Goodman. Oh, see, it's I, John Goodman. I, I, I don't. Know. But Jim I do Belushi love John. wasn't in at all. John Goodman. I'm sure he is. In part uh, of there, you yeah. well, there you go. There you go. From what I read is because again, Dan Aykroyd still puts on the suit occasionally. And does Jim Belushi things. has done he performances now, with yeah, Dan Aykroyd. Doing a lot yeah, of that now. But, um, but yeah, I, I honestly, I've never seen Blues Brothers 2000. So when we get to that, oh that's gonna, are, are we going to get? Of to course, that? we're going to watch all the SNL movies, Nate. So if we have to watch It's Pat, we have to watch Blues Brothers 2000. If I'm watching Stuart Saves His Family, I'm watching Blues Brothers. Hey, he's good enough and he's smart enough, and gosh darn it, people like him. Hey, what's our next film then? Well, our next movie is going to be Wayne's World from 1992, which is again a crazy thing. Where Mike Myers, Dana Carvey, they had like at the at the point of SNL was at its peak in the 80s. You would have thought that they would have greenlit like a Mr. Robinson's movie because of Eddie Murphy was pretty busy in the 80s. Well, also you're right, he, he, <laughs> but I so Lauren Michaels clearly allowed him to do what. Well, no, because Eddie Murphy was only on the show for what a year, two or three, not, not even a long time, yeah, four months. I think two, two years, <laughs> two or three but years. Maybe. Interestingly, 
you know, the Blues Brothers film is not produced. Of course, he probably didn't have the money, didn't have the, the well, sure. pull yeah. by Lauren Michaels. In the 90s, that's when Lauren Michaels starts producing their own films. No, yeah. and to be fair, that was the Ebersol years, and like there was a lot of messy stuff that was happening in the 80s with SNL. So maybe the, the 90s, I mean, saw like a resurgence yeah, of, of popularity for yeah. SNL yeah. because yeah. of all those people. And so, like, they decided to take a chance, and Wayne's World was just a, a huge, surprising hit. Honestly, I think that you get movies of course like it's pat and and coneheads and all that happens because oh look we did what once no and of now, course that's how that works but i i when we we'll, we'll Wayne, talk about, wayne's world is is perfect we'll talk about this when it's we get, incredible when we get to coneheads i love coneheads and anyone thinks that it's bad can fuck themselves whoa yeah. hot, that's hot day brad for you love i love coneheads so it's pat sucks <laughs> of course it does. How could that possibly be? So yeah, be so to give you guys kind of our, our listeners some of the things that we're going to be talking about in the future if you want to start watching them when you get time. So obviously Blues Brothers first, Wayne's World, then Coneheads, then Wayne's World 2, then it's Pat, then Stuart saves his family, then Blues Brothers 2000. Night of the Roxbury? That is next. Mm-hmm. Uh, another film that Brad, Brad actually likes, don't you? Yeah, I do. I do. Um, Superstar. Then Superstar, then The Ladies' Man, then MacGruber, a film that you guys love. So the, what's the difference in timeline between The Ladies' Man in 2000 and MacGruber in 2014? 2010, MacGruber. Gotcha. Yeah. So so actually a less time period than Blues Brothers to Wayne's World, but yeah. still kind of surprising that there was a 10-year gap where there wasn't a movie. Yep. They were getting away from character-based stuff. Yeah, that's the thing. As I, I think after Ladies Man, not only had the interest in SL movies started to wane, but like... Wayne's eh, world. Eh, uh, but like, yeah, once that was when like Will Ferrell was starting to like rise up more and the cast was shifting over to like Jimmy Fallon and that kind of thing. And even though they had, they had recurring <laughs> characters and whatnot, there was nothing that ever really felt like it deserved its own movie or anything like that. So, what about... So, so nothing that deserved its own movie like like pat right deserved of course their own movie what about though because i i recently watched it billy madison it's not technically an snl film because lauren michaels doesn't produce it but it's got adam adam sandler it's got norm mcdonald in it it's got you know all the, chris farley but because it's not based on a sketch from snl jim downey's in it too. yeah jim downey we don't consider that an snl film wait correct? jim da- yeah, Jim Downey is in it. Yeah, he's yeah. the he's the uh, judge of the uh, academic. Yes, camp. yeah, that's what it is. Yeah, yeah, we are all now stupider. And Robert Smigel is in it. Yes, but we wouldn't include this in our film watch. No, because it's not an it's not a Lauren Michaels produced, or it's not SNL based on an SNL sketch. sketch. Yeah, film. technically, uh, Office Space could be considered uh, an SNL movie because the origins of that uh, I think it was the Milton character, if I remember correctly, um, have a an origin in some, uh, an SNL short. Really? Somewhere. Yeah. Wow. I remember reading, at least I think I remember reading something about yeah, that. Yeah, Office Space originated in the series of three animated Milton short animated. films that That's what it was. Mike Judge created about an office worker by that name. They first aired on Liquid Television and on Saturday Night Live. There you go. So, yeah. Liquid Television was, I think, an MTV production? Uh, yep. From ninety one to ninety five, and I I think that there was also there was I don't know if it was a specific character or maybe maybe it was just the general idea of what Christopher Guest was doing. But I thought I thought there was something that Christopher Guest did on SNL that made its way into one of his uh, mockumentary. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. So those are the films, uh, the list that I gave you earlier, the ones that we're going to try to do every other week, and we'd love to have you watch it with us. Give us your thoughts, your opinions. Uh, let us know what scene you love the most um, about the Blues Brothers. 
Uh, maybe there's a fact or something we didn't say that you know about it. We'd love to hear more. Uh, it's it's fun to do deep dives of these films, especially films that have had such a, a, a broad and incredible impact on comedy films. Brad, uh, real quick, did you uh, recognize the leader of the Illinois Nazi Party from a different film that you've watched recently? Oh, I thought you were going to be like, did you recognize the leader of the Illinois Nazi Party <laughs> just as a whole? And I watched recently? Probably in the last, definitely in the last three months. That we were assigned to, that you got assigned on our other movie podcast. We didn't cut all this, but just letting you know. What 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 other movie was he in that you gave me? No, he wasn't. I just figured out he wasn't. Oh <laughs> wow! So you just made up bullshit. You no, know, I thought it was the same guy from the Burbs, the old man, the Klopex. Oh no, that's no, a, it's that's, a that's a totally, totally <laughs> no. But in my head, I'm like, I did the thing, same thing that Paul Dano and uh, Domino Gleason that my mom does. <laughs> but no. he, do, he does play uh, the uh, the priest in uh, Wedding Father O'Neill. Yeah. Wedding Crashes. Yeah. Oh, yes, that's yeah. the right. one that I saw him in. Yeah, nice. yeah. Yeah, we can cut all that. Sorry. <laughs> and you wonder why I don't trust you. Yeah, it's yeah. true. <laughs> All right, well, we'll be back in two weeks. Uh, we'll be watching Wayne's World. We, we had another episode on Wayne's World, that, and Brad's going to have some fun things to share because he's actually interviewed the director. Uh, what's her name? Penelope again? Spheris. Yeah, and so he can bring some more stuff. From Brad was that in well. Wayne's World. And we could talk a little bit more about that. Um, but again, uh, smash that. <laughs> Don't smack, guys. <laughs> lightly press. You have got a you have an expensive phone. Mm-hmm. Lightly tap subscribe. Smash it. No, I want you to. I want no. you. To, yeah, just fucking crunch. No, no, it. No, 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 no. Yeah, just get <laughs> Listen, in there. You got an OtterBox. You smash it. You have a normal setup. Touch it. No, just, uh, give us a review. Rate us a five double star. Send us a message. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Connect with us on Twitter or Facebook. Uh, go to the 10 to one podcom Find us there. Hey, it, it's so much fun to talk SNL with you. We don't know when the the next season will be, but we're going to keep on going uh, here. We this don't summer. know how long we're going to live either. Nope. <laughs> Good Lord. <laughs> no, and we're all carrying a couple extra pounds. So, yeah. you know, cholesterol, these kind of things. But, you know, what? in the meantime, you be good to yourself. And you be good to the others. Bye-bye.